time is one of those critical ingredients and people hate that because there's nothing you can do. Like we can't fast forward time. Maybe we can do things to accelerate progress, but often, you know, if we're not careful, a fast rise is followed by a fast fall. From fastermind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Imagine growing up in a wild jungle. You know you've got an adventure in front of you, and as you come out of adolescence, you are eager to find your way. As you venture out on your trek, you come across a village full of what seem like really good people who look crazy successful and who offer you a map to get you to your promised land. You eagerly take their guide and off you go. And after a significant investment of faithfully following the plan, you find yourself on a well-trodden road that seems to validate that you're headed in the right direction. You think you're near the climax of your adventure. In fact, you think it's right around the next bend. And then as you round that corner, you arrive at a cliff. The road has eroded and all that's left is a death-defying drop-off. What do you do? This, my friends, is the journey of our guest today, Serini Rao, author of the brand new, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. And if you're like me, you will find a lot of your own narrative in his story too. If you don't know Serini already, he's also the host and founder of the enormously popular Unmistakable Creative Podcast. He's also written multiple books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Art of Being Unmistakable. Srini holds an economics degree from Cal Berkeley and an MBA from Pepperdine University, but those credentials are just the beginning. Srini has made an incredible life extracting unmistakable stories out of some amazing people, including some of our friends here at Converge, including Chris Gillibo, Todd Henry, Gretchen Rubin, Seth Godin, and many others. Today, though, we get a chance to take a stab at extracting some unmistakable stories and insights from Srini himself. And let me tell you, my friends, you are in. For a treat. Welcome, Srini, to Converge. Thanks, Dane. It's good to be here. I am so pleased. We do have a number of common friends, and I won't name drop any more than I have in the intro, but I count you in that same crew of just extraordinary people who've made an extraordinary life for yourself. But I also recognize that it's one thing to look at your life in retrospect, and it's a totally different thing to live it out in real time. And For those who are unfamiliar with your story, can you get us up to speed a little on how your adventure got started and what it looked like to discover that your map for life wasn't going to work out. I think the the place where it really begins is with the end of business school. And, you know, somebody once said to me that often in our endings, there are new beginnings, uh, even though they don't seem like it at the time. Uh, you know, so business school ended and I didn't have a job lined up. Uh, you know, it was very, very much a low point in my life because, you know, you finish two degrees and you spent 10 years, you know, collecting, you know, jobs on resumes and thinking, okay, my MBA is the ticket to a greater life, to, to a greater significance, to greater meaning, to, to something that I truly love doing. 
And what you discover instead is that there's nothing waiting for you at the end. Uh, because I graduated into a recession, you know, probably the greatest recession we've ever been in, which was April 2009. And, you know, Ryan Holiday said this in one of his books. He said, you know, the, the thing that we don't realize is how many amazing things have happened often during great recessions, like LinkedIn started during the post-dot-com bubble. Like the, the amount of Fortune 500 companies that have been built and started during recessions is actually pretty mind-blowing. So I think that that really leads to this, this idea of, okay, what am I going to do with my time? between graduating and looking for a job. And so I, I knew that if I spent all my time looking for a job, that would be really depressing. And so I, I started a blog. I started uh, as a byproduct of the blog, a weekly interview series called Interviews with Up-and-Coming Bloggers, which you know, subsequently was spun out into a, 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 a show called Blogcast FM, which after several hundred interviews, uh, eventually evolved into what you know today as the unmistakable creative but I think the way I would describe it is that it was a series of fortunate accidents and false horizons along the way. Everything, none, none of it was part of some grand plan. You know, you opened the conversation by saying that, you know, you follow a map and you get to the end of the road and you realize that, you know, you're at a cliff. And I think that's a, that's a fitting description because you realize all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I, the map is no of no use anymore. And now, you know, I have to make my own map in order to get to where I want to go. That's incredibly disorienting for most people, as it should be, because we're, we're conditioned to seek out certainty. We're conditioned to seek out safety and security and all the things that you know we've, we've gotten used to throughout our lives. I mean, it, it's almost what's expected of us. And so when it's all gone, in a lot of ways, it's an awakening because it's a chance to start all over as if you have a, a clean slate. Now, what most people do, and this is, you know, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm masterful at not doing this, is they take their past and they let that determine their future. So they basically take all, you know, they, they talk about this in the Lamar Forum. What we do is we make what's called a filing error. And we take the events of our past and we put them in our future. And as a result, there's no room to create anything new. And so I figured that, okay, you know what? This is really a chance to start my career over. And so the result, of course, is here we are eight years later. 700 plus interviews, a book coming out with a publisher, you know, working on creative projects that I just, I couldn't have fathomed, including a live event, an animated series. So a whole series of, uh, and a vignette of projects, things that nobody in my working life probably would have thought I was capable of. And so that's, that's kind of what, you know, in a short story brings us up to today. Mm, so helpful, man. So I want to read a quick quote from the introduction of the new book, and I want to put that in context with what you just said about making your own map. In the introduction, you say this, you say, you begin a quest for which only you were made, the passage that only you are destined to make. You learn the art of being unmistakable, but this doesn't happen in one brief moment, one blog post, one work of art. It's not something you do. It's not a technique, a methodology, or a formula. It's something that becomes part of your DNA, a sense through which you view the world. And once you see the world this way, it will never look the same. So I love that as a, as a kind of framework, because it's striking to me that you don't lead out with, hey, you need to go do X, Y, or Z. You're saying there's actually something in your way of being that will really inform or how you're relating with your history or your visions of your future to somehow do something in the present. But at the same time, it's funny, when I hear you tell your story of how you get up till today, it can be a little intimidating. I mean, 700 interviews with some of the most influential people alive. You yourself have just created this extraordinary world. But if you're on the front end of that journey and you're trying to make your own map, 
where are the right places to get started, especially if it isn't just go do stuff? There's something about your way of being in the middle of it. Can you talk a little bit about if you were starting over knowing what you know now, how you would get after it? The question of, you know, what would you do differently if you knew what you know now is always an interesting one because, I mean, you're you're a different person now. And, and the funny thing is you wouldn't be who you are if you hadn't experienced what, you're, what you had. And so, you know, you know, my sort of immediate instinct is to say I would do nothing differently. Of course, it's easy to say that standing where I am, you know, at the end of this. So I think it, it, maybe that there's some things that it probably helps to consider in the process of looking for what it is that makes you, you know, unmistakable or allows you to make whatever contribution you're destined to make to the world. And and the first one is to to realize that everybody starts at zero, right? So, you know, you mentioned 700 interviews and, and you say that's intimidating, but you have to remember that, you know, I have also eight years of time put into this. You know, time is one of those critical ingredients and people hate that because there's nothing you can do. Like we can't fast forward time. You know, maybe we can do things to accelerate progress, but often, you know, if we're not careful, a fast rise is followed by a fast fall because people experience things that they're not ready for. And so, you know, you get caught up in these emotional highs and lows and, and, you know, you don't really handle what's happened to you well. And, and you're not ready for certain things. So, you know, I, I've mentioned this a handful of times that, you know, this book couldn't have been what it is without eight years of experience because I, I couldn't have written the same book because I didn't have the same experience. And so as far as, as you know, what I would do differently, that, that's a really tough question because I think that it was what I did and what I ended up doing that revealed to me all the things that I have learned along the way. So if I did anything differently, I wouldn't be where I am, you know? And so maybe if I were starting over today, if I were starting today, I, I think that there's a couple of things that maybe, you know, I, I would look at um, right off the bat. First, I think it is looking at mentors and, and coaches and people who have been there before you, because that's absolutely one way to accelerate your progress. You know, I, I think it's critically important that you understand whether your work is improving or what the quality of your work is. And, and the only way that you do that is by getting feedback from people whose opinions actually matter. So feedback is a very delicate thing, right? There are certain people that will give you feedback. So anonymous strangers on the internet giving you feedback that your work sucks or that you're an idiot. People who write two-star reviews of books who've never written a book themselves or never have or read even attempted book. anything. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing is, I, I've said it's much easier to be a critic than it is to be a creator because when you're a critic, you're off the hook, right? There's nothing on the line when you're a critic other than, hey, I'm just going to vilify and criticize and tear this person down because I can, but the the thing is, you know, that same critic, if they put themselves in a position to be criticized, would maybe feel differently about it. So I think that, you know, I've always abided by the policy. It's like, okay, you know what, there's some books I, I hate, but what value am I adding to the world by writing a shit review of a book other than, you know, damaging the potential of that author's career? And people will go on on just ridiculous rants about how much they hate something on an Amazon review or in, in Facebook. And you know, not that I, you know, I, I don't see the world through, you know, rose colored glasses. Like I, you know, I think there's such thing as reality. And it's funny because I, I put a quote on Facebook just yesterday that I'd written from my journals. I said, you know, often like throughout our lives, people will tell us that certain things are impossible. And the funny thing is that those often come from people who have never done that thing themselves. And so you should take their advice with a grain of salt or, a, and wash it down with a shot of tequila. And, you know, Mark Schaefer, who is, is a, an old friend and colleague who I, you know, whose blog I contributed to, he said, well, what if there is a possibility that, you know, what you're trying to do isn't possible? Isn't that a reality? So, you know, I thought about it and I was like, you know, if Laird Hamilton told me, Srini, you probably shouldn't paddle out in 60 foot surf because you're not, you're probably going to die. 
I would say that's that's one of those situations where there is an exception to that to what I've just said. But often we let that be a determining factor. And, and so we have to be mindful of the fact that even if people are well-intentioned, maybe what they're saying isn't going to give us the best possible outcome. And so, you know, the thing is that you can agree, you can disagree, whatever it is, you know, to me, there's no value in spending my time engaging in battle with people who don't agree with my ideas because that's the same energy could be poured into other ideas and other work. And so I, I don't find the value in, in wasting time doing that. So that's, you know, that, that, that's one thing to think about is, is, you know, understanding that everybody starts at zero. Everybody sucks when they start. What can you do to change that? One of one is coaches and mentors. The other thing I think we, we have to really think about is this idea of longevity, right? You know, you mentioned 700 interviews and I told you time. What has happened is in a world where we can make something, build something and share it with the world in the span of an hour, people give up very easily because it's so easy to start but it's so much harder to stick with it. And the thing is that if you look at the way media is created, if you look at the way media is consumed, we create and consume media by habit. So if somebody, for example, if Seth Godin doesn't post a blog today, there's a chance that he's probably dead. Uh, there's a, a probably a 100% chance that he's either died or he's in the hospital. That's about the only reason there wouldn't be a blog on a published post on Seth Godin's blog, because we know Seth writes something every day and he's done it for 10 years. And that idea of I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do it every day. And I'm going to do it for a really long time. I think that's a, that's a big one. You know, I, I think that I would, I would, I would be more mindful of that if I started today. That's one thing I think I've realized in the beginning, I wanted things to happen faster than they were happening. And I wasn't aware of the fact that all of these things, all of these accomplishments that we look up to all the people that you mentioned sort of as, you know, people who, who have accomplished extraordinary things, every one of them has put in significant amounts of time, more than most of us really know. You know, even the, the so-called, you know, what appears to be overnight success, when you look at it, even if they come out of the gates just guns blazing, you look at the backstory and it's like, wait a minute, you came out of the gates guns blazing because you had the background to do it or the experience to do it. So I, I think that's, you know, that's one thing we really have to consider is, is how much, you know, I, I think how much time are you willing to commit and how serious are you? Like your perspective has to be a long-term one. So I, I would say, you know, I would look at, okay, I'm going to do this thing and I'm serious about it and I'm going to spend 10 years doing it. And along the way, I'm going to learn. And, and maybe along the way you learn that maybe this isn't the thing. So for example, you know, one of the, the first pieces of feedback I got from my friend Sid Savaro was that I was a better interviewer than I was a writer. And I could have taken that and been really angry and pissed off. And and he act, But the thing is, he said that he knew the thing that made my work special was my interviews, not my writing. And so he encouraged me to actually spin, you know, the interviews out into a separate site, as we talked about. But, you know, and, and, and he said, if you dedicate yourself to this, I think it could really do wonders for you. I, I think you could really be an, in a league of your own. Whereas, you know, with the, the writing, I wasn't quite the same, you know, quite in that league. And so you, it's all of these things combined. You know, I think one of the things that's built into that question that you asked about, you know, what would you do differently if you were starting over today is not only what should I do, but how do I know it's going to work? And the answer to that question is you don't. Mm -hmm. because when we're concerned with the guarantee that it will absolutely work and that we won't be wrong, then what happens is we play it safe. We, you know, we end up being replicas and mimics of everything that exists, which, you know, I, I talk quite a bit about in the book. And so I think there's this fear that we're going to be wrong or this fear that what we have created is not going to be good keeps people asking this question of what would you do differently if you started today? And how do I know if I do that, I'm going to be absolutely right. And the answer is you just don't. Yeah, that's entirely true. I mean, it does seem like if we're not living on a, the possibility of 
fail or success, we probably aren't close enough to the edge to do anything of significance. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, of course. You know, that, that's that's absolutely a fair way to put it. I mean, you know, we, we we're both surfers, right? So what you know when you go for a wave is that you're not going to make everyone. You know, <laughs> like a wave a wave can look perfect. You can paddle and the damn thing can close out, you know, and the whole bottom falls out on you. And you know this firsthand, you know, sometimes you'll see it and you're like, wow, that corner looks so perfect. It looks like it's going to open up and I get an amazing ride. And you make the drop and there's nowhere to go. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that energy piece. So like if this is the frame that we're living in as humans and creatives, that people who want to make a difference with what they're making, you also describe some character traits of our way of being. And in particular, you use these four phrases, playing with abandon, optimism, curiosity, and childlike. And I'm just curious, you don't talk about all of them, but as I'm kind of repeat back what you wrote, I'm wondering why are those traits so important in this pursuit? I think, you know, childlike and curiosity are really the ones that, that are important to me because, you know, I think half the, the journey of adulthood, and I also said this, is, is trying to get back to that place that we were at in our childhood. Because if you look at kids, they don't have a fear of being wrong. They are incredibly curious. And because of that curiosity, they come up with solutions to problems that you and I would never even think of. Their role is entirely driven by the notion of possibility because they've not been taught that something isn't possible, even if it has no basis in reality. You know, I, I very distinctly remember this moment to, to pad my business school application. I, I did some volunteer work uh, where I remember talking to a kid who was a seventh grader, and I, I, I found it frustrating at times because I thought I would be able to have these very deeply, you know, stimulating intellectual conversations with a seventh grader, which was my own fault. But then, you know, he also taught me something. Um, and it's funny because probably now that kid is in his 20s. You know, I remember he asked me, he said, can kangaroos box? Because he had seen kangaroos boxing, uh, probably on TV or in a cartoon. And so it's this very imaginative perspective of, okay, yeah, there's no, you know, probably you're not going to see kangaroos with boxing gloves having a Mike Tyson-like experience. But for a seventh grader, in his mind, that seemed completely feasible because nobody has told him that something is not possible. I think one of my favorite Seth Godin quotes is, don't, you know, don't search for the right answer, search for an interesting answer. And so an interesting answer isn't necessarily the right one. Sometimes it's the wrong one. But, you know, so much of, of what we do at Unmistakable Creative is driven by my innate curiosity. You know, it, it's, it's how I choose the guests that I choose. It's why we have the artwork the way we do. All of that stems from a, a certain curiosity about, you know, if I did this, what would happen? Instead of something needs to go a certain way, my default sort of mode of operation when it comes to to creative projects is what would happen if and and you know i mean there have been times when what happened was the the project was an absolute failure and blew up in my face and then there's other times when we succeeded beyond any expectations and then that's you know i, I think the the thing we have to have is curiosity and, and a certain sort of childlike optimism because you know children don't have the fear of being wrong at least when they start out and eventually they're conditioned into that fear of being wrong mm. Well, in the book itself, uh, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. And I love that distinction. By the way, as a side note, my first book was called Fast Track Photographer. And I made this case for this thing called Becoming a Signature Creative. And you articulated it far better than I did. But some of what it came from, I think we're all standing on the shoulders of guys like Richard Bowles or Dick Bowles. He wrote the foreword for my first book. And he mm -hmm. wrote What Color's Your Parachute? And he kind of argues for a similar deal. But what I love most about your frame is you, the whole organizing principle behind your book is around this incredibly iconic sport called surfing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. for folks who are 
uh, maybe they don't live near a coast and they, they've only seen it. They've seen Kelly Slater on TV or, you know, whatever. They have these ideas of what surfing is. You actually get into the practical pieces of, you know, kind of the six stages of what it means to actually surf away. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through what we might be able to learn from each of them in turn. And I'm not asking you to give away the book by any stretch, but just to help people get their head around like the paddle out, the line up, the drop, the ride, the impact and the stoke. But let's take it in turn. So talk about the paddle out. Why is that so important? Yeah. So the paddle out, I mean, as you know, you know, when you're, when you're paddling out, the first thing you do is you stand on shore and you kind of look at the waves and you look at what's happening in the water. You know, how many people are in the water, you know, how big are the waves? Are they, are they coming in or is, are you between sets? Because, you know, waves come in sets. So there are moments when you can get out to the, what is called the lineup as quickly as possible and as seamlessly as possible. But the thing is that, you know, half the battle of the paddle, out, you know, so the paddle, about, paddle out is a metaphor for starting to begin with, you know, so some people, the thing is, all the magic happens in the water, right? You know, as you know, if you've taken surf lessons, you start with land lessons, and the stupid land lesson is pretty much useless the moment you get in the water, <laughs> because the surf instructor will say, "Okay, pop up," and you're like, "Oh, that was easy," you know. And then, of course, what he fa- fails to tell you, or what you don't realize, is that, by the way, a board stationary on sand versus a board that's in moving <laughs> water are two totally different experiences. Like all these variables are suddenly introduced that there's no way you can experience those variables without actually getting into the water. No matter how much you simulate it, you could watch a hundred videos on surfing, you could watch all that stuff and you will get in the water and you will eat shit the first two times. That's just inevitable. And so the only antidote is to actually get into the water. So that that's, you know, and, and I think that's a perfect metaphor for any creative project, right? The only antidote to all the fear and all the knowledge, you know, dialogue that's going on in your head and all the resistance and all the things that come up for us when we attempt to create something that's never been done before or, or attempt to create something, period, is to just start it. Because the thing is, the moment you start, a whole other set of variables that you could never be exposed to any other way get introduced into the situation. The lineup is about competition. And, and the reason I, you know, I, I felt competition was very important to address is because this book is about making your competition irrelevant. And the interesting thing about surfing, as you know, and part of the appeal of surfing to somebody like me is it's not a team sport because the person that you're competing against every day is yourself. You know, you're competing against how well you surfed the last wave or how well you surfed the day before. And, you know, like I'm not a very good athlete. So when I was on team sports, I was like, wow, I bring down the quality of the performance for the entire team. And like in surfing, you don't have to worry about that. You know, if you're if you're surfing shitty, as long as you're not dropping in on people, your lousy surf session doesn't affect the quality of somebody else's surf session. And I think that's a that's a profound metaphor for not getting too caught up and looking at our competition constantly. But at the same time, being aware that when you've got this much competition, you know, you go to a crowded surf spot or one that, you know, draws a a lot of people to it. If it's a good surf spot, there's always going to be a lot of people in the water and many of them are going to be better than you are. And the only way you earn the respect of that lineup as somebody who deserves to be there is by showing up regularly. You know, when you, it, it goes back to that idea of, you know, we create, we consume media by habit. So if you're here for a day and you never come back, you know, and you show up in the water, people are going to be like, well, whatever, you, you're, you're not serious about this. Whereas if you come back every single day, you know this from being a surfer, you see the same people in the water every day after about six months. It's kind of like you're you're all friends. You know, you kind of know each other. You get to talking. I mean, all you talk about is waves, but there's this, there's sort of, you, you basically have been vetted by the pecking order. You're like, okay, you're, you're accepted. Let me drill down a little further with that because I, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny because as a novice surfer, I remember going out and actually feeling this sense of offense, like, why are the locals so frustrated with me? And I, I didn't even know what I was doing wrong. Like, I just had the etiquette off. 
Um, I was, I was cutting people off. I was actually putting them in danger in certain moments and didn't know that I was. <laughs> Cause I think, I think it's the kind of thing where it's tempting. I think when folks walk into a new industry and they see folks that go, man, they're doing it. Why can't I do it? I have the same gear. I have the same, I can write or I can do whatever, but why aren't they creating space for me? But it's kind of looking at it backwards, I think. But what, what, what are your, what's your thought? I, I think it, it comes down to earning the respect, you know, like somebody can come on the scene and explode, you know, it's like, Hey, they come out of the gates gung ho. You know, I've seen this with, with friends, you know, when they're like, Oh, I want to start something. And I'm a Saturday afternoon rolls around and they, they have this like sudden dose of inspiration and, you know, they work their asses off for five hours. And then six months later, they're wondering why they're not gaining any momentum. And so I, I think the same thing happens, right? Because, you know, when you start out, you're not very good as a surfer. I mean, it takes an insane amount of water time to even get to the point where you can actually stand up for fairly consistently. And, you know, here we are seven years later and I, I, I far from mastery, right? Not even close. I mean, there's guys who've surfed for 40, 50 years. So that makes you kind of, that takes us back to that idea of longevity. You know, most of the guys who surf who are really good have been doing it for a long time. And most of them are not even good enough to be professionals, which is a very, you know, eye-opening look into to mastery. But yeah, I, I think it really comes down to just earning respect because, you know, people don't take you seriously until you take yourself seriously. That's really what it comes down to. I don't want to miss that last point because taking yourself not so seriously is probably pretty critical when you're a novice with folks that are competent. So the thing is, you know, if you take yourself too seriously, the work becomes this, you know, constant competition. It becomes a source of stress. It becomes a source of anxiety. Um, all these things go wrong, you know, when you're, when you're coming from a place of tension and anxiety, but when you come from it of a place of playfulness, right? Um, you know, the ocean, really, you have to come and treat it like a playground. And, you know, most beginning surfers, the funny thing is when you are a beginning surfer, uh, you know this, the, the same thing that produces the, this incredible high after a certain point no longer does it, right? Because you're, you want bigger waves, you want faster waves, you want more to get the same thrill. And it's, in that sense, it's very much like a drug in that your tolerance goes up. And yet there's this very much a, a playfulness to it when you do things like catch waves for the first time. And like, I mean, even as you get better, you know, when you get a really good wave, you're like a kid, like you just almost laugh, you know, when you, you know, when you get one of those waves that goes forever, it's like, you know, a long open face with like five or six turns. I mean, you paddle back out to the lineup with like an ear to ear smile on your face and this glow in your eyes. And that's, that's all about playfulness. And I, I think that, you know, you have to have a playful attitude to experience that because, you know, the, the people who are, who take themselves too seriously, like, you know, are aggro and yelling at everybody in the water and all that, like they're not liked at all either. So, you know, that, that that's what we got to think about there. Uh, but as far as the drop goes, I mean, the drop really is, is a metaphor for commitment because, you know, there's this moment between paddling for a wave and pushing yourself up that is known as the drop. And if you screw up the drop, if you hesitate on the drop, if you, if you do something wrong in the drop, it amplifies, it, it affects the entire ride. It determines what the whole ride will be like. And so the, the funny thing is a lot of people hesitate on the drop and, and you know, it, I have as well. I mean, you, I know anybody who surfs knows what it's like to hesitate on the drop because you look and you're just like, okay, that looks like a watery grave. It doesn't look like it's going to end well. And there are moments when, you know, it's appropriate to hesitate on the drop, you know, because the wave does end up closing out and it, there's this instinct. But the thing is, there are often other moments when we hesitate on the drop and a perfect wave passes us by, you know, and you're just like, shit, I should have gone. And so, you know, learning to figure out when not to hesitate and when to hesitate is a whole art form that's driven by instinct and intuition. And the only way to really understand that is to spend a ton of time back in the water, which takes us back to the theme of time, which seems to be coming up over and over again in our conversation, probably because it's so important. But that's what the drop is all about. And what's, what's interesting to me is, is, you know, when we've talked about the drop, every single person who is in some semblance of a career transition has texted me or emailed me and said, this is the chapter. 
this is the one that I feel like I can relate to most. And, you know, I always say, well, I hope it inspires you not to hesitate because when we want to do this thing, there is a certain level of commitment that needs to be involved. Like we have to say, okay, we're in and we're going to, we're all in at a certain point. You can't hesitate on the drop because if you have one foot into this thing and one foot out, well, it, it will make for a, a messy ride. Well, and then there's that ride piece. <laughs> so we've, we've dropped in, we're on the ride. Walk us through just that kind of those final sections of the ride, the zone and the stoke. Yeah. So the ride is really a, a metaphor for mastery, right? Because you know, the hardest part of surfing really is, is getting yourself up. But the thing is that you're, you know, get it. Nobody judges you by how well you pop up or how well you paddle out or how well you don't hesitate on the drop. Your caliber of your skill is judged by how well you ride a wave. You know, that's what we look at and we say, okay, he's a good surfer. And so, you know, the ride is where everything comes together. Like it's the moment in which all these things, time, practice, everything comes together in that moment when we stand up and putting your work out into the world, that is a moment when you stand up. That's when your ride begins. Like So every blog post is a wave. Every podcast you publish is a wave. Every piece of art you create is a wave. And what's it going to be like? Is it going to be your best work? Is it going to be your worst work? And, and you know, as you know, it, you're riding thousands of waves in the lifetime of a surfer. It's not one wave. No one wave determines what your entire surf career is. It's your cumulative output that determines your ability to surf. And so, you know, the ride is also a place where style comes in. You know, that's when you can look at a friend in the water and, and you probably know this. You can say, okay, I, I can tell that's my friend Brett because I can tell from his stance. I can tell from the things that he does. I can tell from the fact that he's an asshole and he launches two foot, you know, airs off of two foot <laughs> waves, which pisses me off. And, you know, cause I know I can't do it. And I'm like, that's such bullshit. It's unfair. But I also know, like, I can, I can take one look by the way he ends, finishes riding a wave. I'm like, hey, that's my friend. That's really what the ride is a metaphor for, you know, and this is where we, we come into things like deliberate practice and, and all the things that, you know, kind of go into mastery. And, you know, I, I think the, the ride was one of the most complicated chapters to write because, you know, there's been entire books dedicated to the subject of mastery to, and to try to cover it in one chapter, I think was hard, which is why I referenced a lot of other work in the ride. So that takes us then to the impact zone, right? So the impact zone is, is one of these things where it's ideally where you never want to end up if you can help it, but it's inevitably where you're going to at one point or another. The only way not to end up in the impact zone is, is not to surf. And, you know, sometimes you end up in the impact zone while you're paddling out because waves come in sets and they start breaking. And sometimes you're in the place exactly where they're breaking, which means you're taking wave after wave after wave after wave on the head. And it seems like it's never going to end. You're never going to come up for air and you're never going to get back out to the point where you can actually, you know, take off. And, and you, you know, if you've surfed a day with a heavy amount of white water and a ton of waves, you know, you'll be close to shore and you'll be paddling. And it's like, I'm not making any progress here. I feel like I've, I've made, you know, made it one foot from shore and I've been paddling for 20 minutes. That to me was a, a profound metaphor for difficult and dark times in our lives, because inevitably, if you're going to do things of great significance, if you're going to, to use a cliche challenge, the status quo, but, or, you know, attempt something that is daring and bold and great, it's not going to come without any challenges. You know, it's not going to be this seamless, effortless thing. And so you are in your impact zone when that happens. And so that's, that's really kind of the way I think about the impact zone. And then that takes us to, you know, the stoke, which, you know, people ask, you know, why do you surf? And it's not really about the waves, right? The waves are, I, I remember, I think this surf journalist in the movie Step Seven to Liquid, he said, you know, the waves are this cherry on top of this, or, uh, you know, the waves are, are part of this other cherry that's on top of it, which is what you feel like when you get out of the water, you know, like that's what we're after all the time. Um, it's that feeling, this, this Zen like high and confidence and calm and peace. It's, it's like all the most amazing fe emotional feelings in the world all tied together into one moment. And that happens when you've spent, you know, an hour in the water and had just an amazing surf session where everything just feels great. And the funny thing is, so the, the metaphor for that is it's the joy that comes from the creative process itself, right? It's the, finishing of the thing and looking at it and saying, wow, 
I did that. Like I made that. How awesome. And really taking taking that for what it's worth and being grateful that you got to experience the thrill of, of building something, making something that didn't exist before. And, and, you know, like I look at, you know, getting to write this book and, you know, you, you hold it in your hands for the first time and you're like, oh, wow, what does it feel like? And I'm, I'm like, I'm stoked. You know, no matter what happens, uh, I'm stoked because this is really a, a beautiful moment. And I think that's what it's, what it's all about. Mm. This frame of surfing, I think works on so many micro and macro levels. So, you know, you drill down to one surf session, one wave, you know, one bailout, one, you know, getting stuck in the, in the impact zone, uh, one great session. I mean, I, I can think of, you know, so many times where I've just not had a great surf session and then one wave turns it around and I'm paddling back at, like, I think I'm going to be done. I catch one wave. I can't stop. I have to go back. Out. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's how you end up in the water for three hours. It's that, <laughs> it's that close to the last wave, right? Like one more wave and I'm done. And then you're there three hours later. That's right. But at the same time, it also works on a macro level. Cause when I think about someone's lifespan in a creative career, you know, the paddle out, the lineup, the drop, like when you count, when you're counting in, hundreds and thousands of drops as opposed to just one that really makes a body of work. And it does make sense to me that that would be the most complex chapter to write. Cause that's where you have to put all those pieces together. Like you said, and the impact zone, you know, you're getting, you should count on getting beat up along the way. It's part of, it's actually a good thing. Uh, it actually tempers you, gets you stronger. Yeah. Makes you able. And then the stoke, especially if you're looking on the, on the course of a whole body of work, when I think of masters in any category, for, you know, from acting to singing to in business to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is, the ones that I love the most are folks who are kind of already in the Hall of Fame, but have no interest in paying attention to being in the Hall of Fame because they still want to be in the game. I think like Seth is someone like that for sure, who is clearly prolific, clearly at the top of his game, but he's not done, but he can get, you know, lifetime achievement awards all the way. So when I think about that on a macro level, because everyone that's listening, they're somewhere in this in their career, right? Maybe they're just getting started. They're, they've been scared. They just jumped in the water. Maybe they're intimidated by their colleagues in their industry. Maybe they're taking the the gulp. They're, they're shipping. They're they're dropping in. They're they're navigating the middle years. They're they're riding it out. They've been beat up a few times, and maybe they're discouraged. But they do have this memory of man, those moments when it all does come together. How it's so worth it. If there was one thing, and maybe we'll finish our time together with this, if there was one thing that mm-hmm. over coffee, you just wanted to give an encouragement to somebody, uh, regardless of where they are in their journey, or if they're in the middle of <laughs> one particular session, and I'm guessing you've had thousands of these coffees yourself, like, what do you find yourself saying uh, over and over to people that really is encouraging? Uh, you know, I, I think really what it comes down to is looking at it all through the lens of possibility, right? Is, is what's possible in this situation, bad or good? Because usually, you know, what we do, like, you know, we talked about at the beginning is, is we, we basically say, we don't think about what's actually possible or what's something good that come from this. You know, my dad throughout my life has always said, you know, whatever happens, it's for your own good, which is, you know, maybe a, a sort of Pollyannish or very optimistic view on the world. And yet, you know, when I, when I look back at life, every single bad thing that has ever happened, somehow, even though in the moment you can't see that, it always has led to something good. And so that, that's something that, I, that I, w- I would say is, you know, no matter how bad it is or no matter how much of a struggle it seems like, remember that, you know, usually something bad will lead to something good. And, and I think, you know, if you look at very successful entrepreneurs and people who, who accomplish great things, they, I think they just have that attitude. At a certain point, they just adopt that, okay, this is a real shit, st- shit show, so something good has to come from it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, friends, do not wait. The brand new Unmistakable Why Only is Better Than Best by Srini Rao is out now. Uh, do not hesitate. It is totally worth your time. And I can't thank you enough, Srini, for being on the show with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. You asked uh, really, really great questions. This was episode six, season two of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, the leading music service for creative professionals. Find the perfect song for your next project at triplescoopmusic.com. Fastermind.co is home base for all things Converge. It's also where you can find exactly what you need to make real change happen. Like ever want to ditch your not-so-smart smartphone addiction? Knock that out this week. No kidding. Find out more at fastermind.co. Until then, I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.